Hey, this is Jay Watts from Merely Human Ministries. Welcome to episode seven of Human Things Podcast 2.0. Very briefly, if you are watching on YouTube, you will notice that my shirt has changing and even some of the stuff behind me is changing. We still always have Walking Jesus and Sackboy up there with the pops, but other things have changed. It's because we, we've broken up this, what was meant to be episode six and episode six, seven, and eight. And today is a very special episode in the sense that we have what we are referencing as the letter, the justification that was sent. I put out a, a request on Facebook to any of my pro-choice friends, please send me the reasons that you're pro-choice. I want to interact with real reasons. I don't want to assume why you believe what you believe. I want to interact with those beliefs. And the first one that we received was a very long and very thoughtful interaction, or at least not long in the sense of it wasn't terribly long, but what it was, it was, it was long and comprehensive in the number of list items that it had on it. And so we wanted to respect that. And Lisa had mentioned before and over here where we were producing it last time that maybe the letter deserved its own episode. And I decided upon reflection, she was right. And so unfortunately I've added work to her and saying, let's go back and break this out. But we want to, to address that seriously. So this episode, episode seven of the human things podcast will center entirely on that letter. And my response is point by point to every item on there. So please enjoy as always, if you're enjoying, subscribe, uh, hit the subscribe button on YouTube, subscribe to on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcast, uh, and merelyhumanministries.org to, to support the endeavor that we're doing here. We are, we are getting great feedback, and we hope to get more interaction like this with people who actually disagree with us. All right, let's move on to the next thing. All right, now this is going to be the, the rest of the show, since we don't have Megan coming on. And this is good, by the way, because... We did it on the show that we don't that we don't have anymore or that we're not going to air, and it was it, we just it didn't have enough time. It's worthy of more time than we were giving it, and I felt rushed because I wanted to get to Megan, and so I felt excited a little bit when everything didn't work and we had a chance to redo this because I feel like this deserves the time. Now, a, a little backstory: I had gone online and gone to my friends on Facebook, and I said to anybody in my social media, I don't want to interact with straw men on my show. If you disagree with me, please direct message me, not in comments, direct message me your reasons for being pro-choice. I will not respond to you in the, in the direct message and any response other than to just say, thank you for being brave enough to share it. I will interact with it on my show. If I think it's a good thing that we can discuss and will lead us to good profitable discussion but I will remove your name from it and any indicators within the question of who you might be so that people can't bring it back to you. And someone felt safe enough to share this when we put this call out online. And I'm hoping to get more, by the way, I'm going to keep putting this call out to people and seeing if I can get more, but this is the first one. It's a little long. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole thing and then we're going to try to work our way through it a little bit at a time. This is the message that I got. My reasons for being pro-choice are a bit different. Until our country can provide protection for women from sexual violence, prenatal and postnatal health care, maternity leave, and child care, I will always support the right to an abortion. Our state insurance of children is severely broken. A friend called 30 doctors, we'll say, trying to get their teen looked at for issues, 
And they were told that the state health care had limits for the year and that they had reached them. Abortion is not a choice I would ever make for myself, but I also take care of myself. I have never been pregnant from a rape, but I also know that I have never been in a desperate situation where I cannot take care of myself. I have never been pregnant from a rape. I have never been an 11 year old that was raped by a family member. I have never been prostituted and known that a pimp would kill me if I were pregnant. I have known several women over the years that have had abortions for various reasons. It was not a decision taken lightly, but it was a decision they made and it was right for them at that point in their life. Abortion will not go away if it's illegal. It will just become very dangerous for women that are already disadvantaged. Wealthy women will always have access to safe abortions. Pregnancy is not easy. I nearly died in childbirth. If you're living paycheck to paycheck and cannot miss a day of work and get, and get put on bed rest, what happens? We tend to look at this through our very affluent eyes. Everyone claims you can just put babies up for adoption, but how many children are in our foster care system? Caring for a crack baby is a lifelong commitment wrought with overwhelming challenges. Eliminate the need for abortion and you will eliminate abortion. Making it illegal will just result in dead women. I, I deeply appreciate this person sending me this and these are the reasons and they clearly feel very strongly about these. So let's address these as reasons for legalized abortion, for protecting the right for women to have abortion throughout the United States or even locally now that we've moved into the era of Dobbs versus Jackson where it's a state issue. First of all, I want to highlight one single thing for certain when we get in there and she says, abortion is not a choice I would ever make for myself. That's important in evaluating this because what we have here is somebody who at least finds abortion morally problematic personally. And we've talked a little bit about that before when somebody says I'm personally pro-life but I'm politically pro-choice. So in order for them, we, we at least know minimally that they have moral issues with abortion personally. They say that. I would never make this choice for myself. So let's start it from there. If abortion is problematic, I'm not a huge fan of that word, but it fits this. Abortion is problematic. Then let's see the reasons why they overwhelm their own moral um let's say reservations, they have moral reservations, but why do they overcome their moral reservations for other people? And why do they refuse to extend their own moral reservations into the law? So here are the first thing. Let's take it. And the first thing, and just as I like to narrate as I go through things in the sense that how do we approach these things? When I write articles, when I'm invited to come speak, when people give me objections, the first thing I try to do is we have to sort through claims. Where did they make claims? Because when we make claims, when we make truth claims, when we're making propositional statements, we're saying things that can be evaluated for their truth. Are they true or are they not? And we have to be able to sort those out from preference claims, claims where we tell them something about ourselves. We have to be able to sort those out for interrogative statements, questions, not actual statements or claims. That can, so they can't be evaluated by the same standards. Uh, we have to look for things that are just that are incoherent by their formulation. And so do the claims, do the propositional statements hold, hold up? The first one is, uh, until our country, so abortion must be legal until, let's break these into three. 
Abortion must be remain legal until we can provide protection for women from sexual violence. Abortion must remain legal until we provide maternity leave and child care for everyone. Abortion must remain legal until prenatal and postnatal health care are provided to everyone. So if we have moral reservations about abortion, it's because abortion is the unjust taking of an innocent human life. At least that's the extension of why it would be. If it's not that, then why would we have reservations about it at all? I have no moral reservations about tooth extractions, to borrow from Greg Kokel. I have no moral reservations about appendectomies. I have no moral reservations about the removal from either worthless tissue or from pathological tissue. Do you remove a cancerous growth from somebody? I have no moral reservations about that. As a matter of fact, I think that's good. So if we have moral reservations about abortions, because we recognize that there's something fundamentally different about abortion from those, then abortion is the destruction of an innocent human life. A life is being lost. If you don't want to even have innocent on there, if you just want to talk about it in terms of life, in abortion, a life is being destroyed. Absolutely, objectively true. A human life is being destroyed. It may be a human life for which you have no moral interest, but that doesn't answer the question of what is it. That is telling us something about you. So, so let's, let's put it in those terms then. We must be free to kill a human life before it's born until we can provide protection from women from sexual violence. I don't understand what she means. I mean, I understand what sexual violence is, but I don't understand in what way we as a society are not providing protection from sexual violence as best we can. Now, she applies this reasoning, by the way, later on when she says we'll never get rid Get it, making abortion illegal will never get rid of it. There will also be always be abortions. Is sexual violence legal? No, it's not. Are perpetrators of sexual violence punished under the law? Yes, they are. Has it stopped sexual violence? No. Will it ever stop sexual violence? No. Can we stop sexual violence? Not without an incredible invasion of privacy and making everybody live a life that nobody wants to live where we're constantly under control and manipulation by forces that make us do what they want us to do all the time. As long as you have privacy, there's going to be people that use the privacy to do evil things. So we know the importance of privacy. We've already talked about that a little bit today. So if you're going to use privacy to do evil things, there's nothing we can do to stop it. How do we, if so, if the standard is we have to be able to stop sexual violence altogether before we get rid of abortion, that's not, we can't meet that criteria ever. You might as well just say you'll never, ever, under any circumstances, be for restricting abortion because we will never be able to meet that criteria. And, and this is not rare, by the way, for people to say that. I have people say things like that and during queuing all the time. Go to these other things and I'll cover them in a bigger, broader sense. Prenatal and postnatal health care. Well, I thought the Affordable Care Act does cover some of that. We provide better coverage there. So I don't know what level of prenatal and postnatal health care that we have to reach. We have to, if you're going to say that these are the reasons that I, who have moral reservations about abortion, approve abortion, then we're going to need a clearer understanding about the, the limits that we're going to have to reach in providing these things that you're saying that we don't provide right now in order for us to be comfortable then as a society and moving to a place where we restrict the intentional destruction of a human life. At what point, what level of prenatal and postnatal in maternity leave do we have to provide that we can say, okay, now we are giving enough. You don't have to kill your offspring anymore because that's what you're saying. You can kill your offspring before they're born because there will be challenges either in your prenatal or postnatal care period and that you won't have sufficient maternity leave. By the way, going back to try out the toddler, which we talked about in a previous example, you would never say this about two-year-olds. Well, if, if the government doesn't provide enough 
quality health care, you should be free to kill your two-year-old. Of course you shouldn't. And nobody would say that, hopefully. No reasonable person would say that. Well, why? Because they recognize the full humanity of that two-year-old. So if the unborn are human in the same way that two-year-old is, then saying that you might have a difficult period in either prenatal or postnatal health care that financially challenges you, you should be free to kill your child before they're born. Kill your offspring, kill your fetus, however you want to say it, if you don't like the word child. It all comes out of the same thing if they're one of us. And if they're not one of us, then that's the argument you need to make. They're not one of us. And you need to lose moral reservations about abortion altogether. Because if they're not one of us, then there are no reasons to have moral reservations about abortion. So at the outset, we're stuck with a problem here, right? You've given us a series of, of criteria that can't possibly be met and said that until that criteria is met, then I will always be for abortion. A young man did this. I think it was at, <clears throat> I'll worry about the university. At one of the universities, Toccoa Falls, I think is actually where it was. We're doing a Q&A where he stood up and made a similar claim to this. And I said, well, here's the problem, man. Okay, number one, the, the issues that you're giving us here are incredibly complicated and difficult for society to solve. We could both agree that we need a solution and we could disagree about the manner in which we're going to solve the problem. That all of us could agree that we want healthcare for people in some form or another. We want everybody to be able to have access to healthcare. We want... But some people would say the government needs to provide it, and other people say that a capitalist system that respects the right to make profit and for people to, to be able to profit from their labor, which will generate wealth, which will generate charitable giving, which will generate doctors who are willing to give back to their community. And we all may have a dis disagreement on how we're going to get health care to the people who need it the most. But, that, that, but the same, we're all working on the same problem. And we all agree that the problem needs to be addressed. We just recognize that it's an incredibly complex problem and we have a difficult time. And there's always going to be there's interesting, recently I saw a clip of Thomas Sowell talking to somebody who was, he was asked to try to define the difference between liberalism and conservatism in his mind. And he said the liberalism seems to believe that the human condition is good and that if we can develop proper institutions, then everything will be okay. That there's nothing wrong with human beings, it's institutions that are flawed. If we can develop proper institutions, then everything will be okay. So the answer is always going to be the right, the perfect institution to go along with a a human nature that's just waiting for that institution to provide it the, the safety and, and resources that it needs to live the life that that human wants to live. So in a nutshell, I think that's probably a good idea of what liberalism is. They have faith in institutions to provide for the human condition in such a way that the right institution would make for a right society and that we would overcome all of the issues that we have through that. He says the conservative position probably more than that recognizes the, the, the flaws in humanity that we see that human, and as a Christian, we understand that human beings are sinful, deeply flawed individuals in pursuit of their own interest outside of the direct leading interference from God. And so when we see human beings, we don't look at somebody and say, that's somebody that given the proper institutions will operate almost perfectly. We look at somebody and say, that's somebody given enough leeway will pursue their own interest and probably be sinfully, uh, uh, negligent about the other human beings around them. And that's what seems to be the story of human history. Every time we try to develop an institution from a liberal perspective, progressive perspective in that sense, that will take care of the problem, somebody finds a way to use that institution to benefit themselves. Happened with communism, happens with socialism, happens with capitalism, happens with every institution. So what Thomas Sowell says in the conservative position is a position of trade-offs. We recognize that utopia is impossible, and so we try to find the best system that we can possibly find that has the least number of negative impacts on humanity. We recognize that anything that we do to help will ultimately hurt someone, but we're trying our best to figure out how to help the most number of people without hurting and hurt the fewest number of people 
while we do it. So we help the largest, hurt the fewest. And then we fix it as best we can when we recognize that we've made a mistake. So when we have this battle, as I, that young man is talking to me, I said, okay, here's the problem. You have given me, and he brought in Africa and other places and all the, and all the needs that we have in those other places. And we had these incredibly complicated problems that require incredibly detailed solutions. And as a conservative, I believe almost every solution that we have on some level or another is going to backfire and fail. And we're gonna to have to revisit it anyway. This is a lifelong job dealing with the brokenness of humanity that all of us have from the moment we come into existence to the time that we die. And every one of us is gonna only see small marginal gains. There is no perfect institution coming. So, I have these tensely complicated issues that you're talking about that require political cooperation and experimentation and refixing the problems that we've done. And then on the other hand, I have abortion. And on abortion, I have in one hand here, objectively speaking, an existent human being. And in the other hand over here, I have hopes and dreams and aspirations of everybody about what they want the world to be. And it, I don't even know how grounded in reality some of the hopes are here on this side, but I know that that human life is real. So in order to feed this side, I destroy this side. They, there may be no hope of ever reaching some of these dreams. They may be utopian by their very nature and not going to come into existence in reality. But until I can see that utopian world, I am free to destroy this existing life that doesn't make any sense to me at all. You see, I have an existing human life over here and I have a set of conditions that I don't know can ever be met on this side. And the easiest approach to this, if I already have moral reservations about the destruction of this life over here is, when I look at the list of problems that I can deal with is to look at this side and say, I don't know that those can ever be solved, but I can solve this problem over here right now. You don't kill your offspring. Let's just all agree we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna kill our offspring before they're born. And then we can tackle those other problems, right? Because they're huge, massive problems that we're not even clear have a solution to them. But this does have a solution. Just don't kill them. Refrain from lethal action against them. And if you can agree to do that, we're halfway to solving this problem all the way. Now we just got to go find other people and get them to agree to do that as well. And it may require, if, when we get them to do that and we see that they need help, then we give them the help. When we see a human being in front, and we already do this, by the way, with pregnancy resource centers and other, and other uh, uh, institutions that are set up to help take care of families. They already exist. And then when we see somebody, do not kill your offspring before they're born. And they say, I will not kill my offspring before they're born, but now I'm facing all these other challenges. Then we step in and help. Then we step in and help the human being in front of us that is facing challenges. And we are doing those things right now. We're just not doing them in places that get, a, that get the same credit that they should get. So let's move on to the next. To, there, to me, is that's the easiest. We're never going to solve some of these issues. We may never be able to solve these issues. Those issues may be, these issues may be so convoluted that it's going to take us a long time to deal with them. This issue is actually easier. Just don't kill them. So let's start there because we can do that one. That's easier to handle. The next thing I want to talk about then is let's look at a friend called 30 doctors to get their team looked at for issues that they were having. And they were told that their state healthcare had limits for the year and that they had met them. I want to say, first of all, that's horrifying. But there's so much information missing that I don't have. And it has nothing to do with abortion. 
We're talking about the health and welfare of a teenager in this particular, but what does that have to do with, unless you're saying that if we knew that they had, there's only two, I guess there's two, let's look at the most charitable way. What she's saying is the institutions are creating struggling people and that they're suffering that we have today. And since we're not doing a better job at that, then by letting more people come into it, we introduce more people into suffering. By the way, I, I don't think suffering is a great reason to prevent somebody from being able to come into existence. A lot, a lot of people come into existence. They suffer. That happens to every single human being on earth. It happens. Happiness is fleeting. Happiness is something that comes and goes. It's an emotion. It's a momentary thing. We feel happy for a little while. And then we feel terrible for a little while. And then we feel happy for a little Life is not, it's not good to have happiness as the, the building block of your life because it comes and goes. That's why I think, you know, morally centered for me, seeking to be, to be more like the person of Christ and to figure out what that means in the world around me is a much better way to live my life because even when I feel awful, I still have a standard in front of me that I have to pursue that's not dependent upon my emotions or how I feel today. If you're in front of me and I'm having a bad day, guess what? I still have to treat you with dignity and respect. That's just the way the world works. At least how I've ordered my world. Happiness does not get, happiness or lack thereof doesn't get to do. So when I'm suffering, which I have suffered, it's not a reason to give up on life. It's a reason to, to find ways to overcome those issues. Now, I will say in defense of some state, so I know somebody who in the last couple of years had $150,000 worth of surgery. A teenager had $150,000 worth of surgery and paid for none of it because the state healthcare took care of their family. So I don't know what's going on in this particular case, but I know I've talked to other people who are dealing that are on state healthcare with their teens. And what I hear from them is that they're being treated. Well, there's, there's, there's bureaucracy that has to be dealt with. There is red tape and there are systems that have to be circumvented. There's people that you have to call and talk to, but ultimately at the end of the day, I don't know the details here. But because of these particular details, I don't think that they are a justification for abortion. I'm not even really 100% clear what they have to do with a a woman being able to take the life of her child before it's born. Other than that, the healthcare system is not perfect. And guess what? Even if we went to a single-payer system where the government was providing it, there would still be trade-offs. You wouldn't have the same access to it that you have to it today. You would wait longer. We do see cases in other countries where people don't get healthcare treatment or diagnosis in time and they suffer from diseases they wouldn't have suffered from had they had earlier treatment or earlier opportunities to get that treatment. And so it's just trade-offs, man. It's we do the best that we can and we figure out the best we can. If you want to say that the current healthcare system is not great, that's, that's okay. I agree with you. There's, there's a mess. Or you want to say that there's another healthcare system that's better advocate for that. But you'd say a, a not perfect healthcare system is justification for abortion. There is no such thing as a perfect healthcare system. And so, again, you're just saying that you will never, ever think that there's a reasonable reason to restrict abortion if that's your position. Abortion is not a choice I would ever make for myself. But I also know that I have never been in a desperate situation where I cannot take care of myself. I have never been pregnant from a rape. I have never been an 11-year-old that was raped by a family member. I have never been prostituted and known that a pimp would kill me if I were pregnant. Those are horrifying situations that human beings face. But that's not what 97 to 98% of abortion is. 
high 90%. When you look this up and you can go to Guttmacher and look at the reasons that people get abortion it's not life of the mother. It's not children conceived in rape. It's not prostitutes that are going to be killed by their pimps. It's reasons of convenience. It's not the right time. No more reason for abortion. I just don't want it right now. I'm in school. It's interfering with my job. I already have kids, whatever. Convenience. 97 to 98% of abortion is convenience. So when you point these out and you say, well, okay, are you willing then to say that 97 to 98% of abortions shouldn't happen? And you want to just let's table these hard cases for a second? I have never met somebody that was willing to do that conversationally, by the way. When they, when they support abortion, they tend to support abortion. And I asked them that question. So, okay, let's say that you remain unconvinced on these issues. I personally think all human beings ought to be treated with dignity and respect. And that when somebody has gone through something traumatic and brutal and violent, that the purpose of society, the, the job society has is to come alongside them and to help them to find the most life-affirming way through this issue. That we, we have been faced with moral evil or natural evil, when you talk about moral evil and rape, or natural evil in the case of women's life in trouble. And we have to figure out what's the best thing that we can do with the bad situation that we're confronted with, because easy options are gone. But if we table that for a second, just table those hard cases for a second. We get to what Francis Beckwith, philosopher at Baylor University, and also you know very familiar in rights on law, says, we cannot craft law on the exceptions. That's not how we make law. We don't find the rarest, weirdest place and then craft the, we craft law on the rule, not the exception. And I've offered this this often when I talk to people about this and I'll talk to audiences. I say, imagine I went to the hospital and I was driving, my son was sick and I was running red lights because I thought if I didn't get to the hospital, he was going to die. And the police follow me into the parking lot and they pull me over. When I get out, they say, you run three red lights, two stop signs, and I say, I understand, but my son was sick. I thought he was dying. I needed to get him here. His life was in danger. And I apologize because in normal circumstances, I would never have done what I did. If the police have the response, okay, we see your son being taken into the hospital. We understand that what was going on. Based on these circumstances, these extreme circumstances, we're going to make an exception. I think that would be a reasonable response. They don't have to make that exception, but they can. And if they do, that's understandably a reasonable response. What wouldn't be reasonable is if they say, you know what? You had a good reason to run those stop signs and that stoplight. So what we should do is just get rid of all stop lines and stop sites. We should have none of stop lights. We should have none of them. We should get rid of every single one of them. Because you had a good reason under this circumstances. I have now realized that, it, that someone else might have a reason. And so get rid of all of them. Let's just have everybody run everything. Well, that's just not how law works. We craft it on the rule, not the exception. So if we do make exceptions, they are just that, exceptions. Now, I want to argue that I think that we can do better as a society than abortion on the most heartbreaking circumstances. But if you and I both agree that 97 to 98% of abortions are happening for reasons of convenience or nothing coming close to rape and life of the mother or the circumstances that we've seen here, then we can agree that the overwhelming majority of abortions have nothing to do with what you just said. And so that can't be a reason that all women are allowed to get abortions because some people face terrible, terrible circumstances that doesn't provide moral cover for the rest of them. So we can both agree those are terrible and we wish we live in a world that doesn't have those things. But at the same time, when you're talking about 
I'm being pregnant from rape, having been an 11-year-old that was raped by a family member, a prostitute that was known that a pimp would kill them if they had had a, uh, if they were pregnant. That's just not what abortion is almost all the time. That would be what abortion is in incredibly rare circumstances. And we don't craft law on incredibly rare circumstances. We craft law on the rule, and then we make exceptions if it's necessary. And then that's a conversation we can have, whether or not those exceptions are necessary. But at least we understand that they are not the rule. I have known several women over the years that had abortions for various reasons. It was not a decision taken lightly, but it was a decision they made, and it was right for them at that point in their life. I want to go back to something I said earlier. When you say it was right for them at the point they made, and I hear this a lot. You hear this from celebrities a lot. Michelle Williams, I would never have won this award if I hadn't been able to get my abortion. Stevie Nicks, I would never have written some of the songs that I wrote or been able to do the music that I did if I had not been able to get the abortions that I had. Celebrities love to get up and say, look at the wonderful life that I've had, and I would never have been able to have this life had I not been allowed to abort that child at that time. Okay. Let's say, let's just say for the sake of argument that I believe you. Let's start with them and then we'll move on to the more general statement made here about these people that I don't know. Let's say that Michelle Williams did, and and I there's Michelle Williams has done some stuff that I like. I'm a fan of uh The Greatest Showman. I like that movie. I like the music. And I will do a whole episode, or not a whole episode, I'll do a segment coming up here soon about people who rip on it because it's not historically accurate as just maybe the dumbest criticism I have ever heard of any movie in my life because there's no such thing as a historically accurate movie. They just don't exist. And and the fact that people are ripping on The Greatest Showman for not being historically accurate at the exact same time that they were praising the brilliance of the movie The Revenant, which is nowhere near historically accurate either, just cracked me up during that period and infuriated me at the same time. So, but she, I thought she was wonderful in that movie. I liked that movie. I think it's a great movie. She was in it. I thought she was uh, Manchester by the sea is a gut riching, horrifyingly depressing movie, but I'm willing to acknowledge that that woman was brilliant in that movie. And the scene with she and Casey Affleck where the, the emotional apex of the movie is some of the, I think just some of the finest acting I've ever seen between two people. It's wonderful. Uh, it's a cinematic gift for those of us who appreciate art. Uh, in that way. As someone who appreciates it, if you said you like it, yes, I do. Or, or, you know, is it worth killing a human being for you to have had this? Oh, no. No, 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 no. See, it's, I, I'm, I'm capable of saying I like, and by the way, I like Stevie Nicks. Um, not as much now. I think she's she's lost some of what made her great. But back then, I loved Stevie Nicks. Uh, and Landslide by Stevie Nicks was one of my favorite songs. Still love that song. I've been made fun of for it by my in-laws. They, they, they don't like her voice, and they make fun of it when it comes on, but I love that song. I, I love Landslide. I've listened to that more times than I can possibly say or count in my life. And if you say, do you love Landslide? I'll tell you, yeah, I do. Do you appreciate that Stevie Nicks sang that song and you've gotten to enjoy it your whole life? I do. I think it's a great song. Uh, so you think it was worth killing somebody for you to have that song? No. No, 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 no. I don't enjoy it that much. I could have lived without it. I could have lived a happy life without it. I could have lived the rest of my life without experiencing any of those great things they produce if it meant a human life got to exist. And I don't think that they would have never, that things, there would not have been something else beautiful produced. So 
at that point, it's not worth it. If you're looking back at your life and saying, I accomplished all of those great things, isn't it worth it? I still say no, because you destroyed a life to get there. And if you had destroyed a two-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 30-year-old to get there, you wouldn't be arguing the same thing. So you honestly believe or obviously believe on some level that they're not the same, but you have to argue for that. And I, I get that you're emotionally tied to this decision in a way that somebody that didn't get abortions isn't, but it's still the same thing. Did your life turn out great? I'm happy for you. Is it worth killing somebody to have to procured that life, to secured it, to have gotten the life that you got? No. No, 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 no. I would rather you have lived a simpler life rather than kill another human being to get it. And I don't think looking at the success of our life and saying, there, that you see, that justifies the decision that I made. No, it doesn't. I can both admire or appreciate the things that you've accomplished and still say it wasn't worth a human life to get it. So there we go there. But the other thing we say, I've known several women over the years that had abortions. So if you're looking back and saying, because I succeeded now that the abortion was worth it, I have issues with that that I've just expressed. If you're looking forward, let's say you're today worrying about it and you say, I need to get an abortion because I have all these dreams and hopes and aspirations about what my life will be. And this child is interfering with those dreams. And so I want to get rid of the child and get rid of the embryo, get rid of the fetus, get rid of my offspring before they're born so that I may pursue those other things. That goes back to what I said a few minutes ago. I have an objectively existent being, a life, and that's real. I have my dreams, my hopes, and my aspirations, and they are not. They are just that, dreams, hopes, and aspirations. And I don't know a single person that got everything they wanted out of life. Heck, I haven't gotten everything I wanted out of most weeks of my life. It's rare that I go through a day that ended up the way that I thought it would be, especially my hope, most, hope, most hopeful aspirations of that day. I woke up in the morning and this is going to be a good day. And then something comes along and interferes with me getting to the things that I thought that were going to make it a good day. That's life. We have what we think we want to be, and then we have what we end up becoming. And by the way, what I thought I wanted to be when I was younger and what I've become as a human being were two totally different things. And I'm so grateful to God every day that I didn't get what I thought that I wanted. It was the unexpected that delivered me to the place where I'm happy. And I, I encourage people at this point, community changes us. We were meant to live in community, made to live in a community, and community transforms us and changes us. It ought to. And the unborn, that child that is growing inside of that expectant mom, is a part of the community. And if it can be allowed to live, it can change you. It can change your hopes and your dreams. And I can tell you, man, when your kid is born, it changes. That first child, it changes your world. Every priority that you had, I, I remember um, Ryan Reynolds, I think, was joking about that one time where he was saying that he thought he loved his wife until his kid was born. And he was like, I would kill you for this kid. <laughs> and, and he was joking about it. But in that, he was joking about something real, right? that it wasn't until there was a piece of me and a piece of Tracy and a new life that I suddenly realized how much I was capable of loving. And for me, actually, I learned something about God's love for me. I, I you know, when God talks in terms of child and parent, when God calls himself father through the scripture, 
because I didn't have the greatest relationship with my dad or, or I had a great relationship with my dad, but my dad, we also had a lot of challenges and problems and there was a lot of issues that had to be dealt with because we were both broken people and our broken parts were scraping up against each other too much. Uh, and so I was, I never fully understood the idea of God as father until I had a child in front of me that I loved so much. I would give my life for them without thought if it meant securing for them from something for the future, it would, I would not hesitate to lay my life down for any one of my children. And, and my wife is the same. And, and we know that about each other, right? Our lives were given for theirs at any point that it was necessary to do so. And that meant suffering and struggling. Even today, by the way, I have two kids in college and one and, and going into high school that has a very expensive pastime in her life. And, and my wife and I talk about this all the time. We've got a, 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 a segment of life right now where we're going to financially have to make sacrifices, which means a lot of times I eat very simple meals at home most of the time because I'm saving my money to help my kids procure the life that they want. Is that what I want to do all the time? No, I want to be a madman living in a mansion surrounded by books and workout equipment and be able to do anything that I want all the time, take every vacation I ever want to take. Of course, that's what I want to be, but not really. Because the thing that's most valuable in my life are these kids that transformed it and changed it. And I didn't fully understand the impact they would have on my life when they came along, and none of us ever do. So when you look at the life you want to have, and then you look at the life that's there now that's threatening that, the life you want to have is not real, but they are. Let them change you. Let them transform your life into something that you didn't plan, but maybe more marvelous than anything you could have seen. It's a failure of imagination to be able to see how God can take our lives and change it from whatever we thought it was going to be into something better by introducing things into our life that we don't understand. And then as we go through those things, we struggle and we hurt and we we're frustrated. But then you have these moments where I am living at my house years later, mowing my lawn, watching my wife and kids play. And I think I didn't even know this possibility existed when I was younger. I didn't know this was a place to want to be. And I only got here because all the hopes and dreams and aspirations I had of my own greatness crashed down around me. And I found this life that I loved built around the people that God has put in my life. And I wouldn't trade it for anything, anything. So when you say they, it was right for them at the time, if A, because they had success, that success is admirable, great, congratulations. It was not worth the life destroyed to get there. We can't destroy life to reach our dreams. If we say it from the position of looking at it now, I have future hopes and aspirations for me and I believe this is the right decision for me, you don't even know what the future with that child looks like. You have no idea what the future with that child existing in this world means. Let's have courage as a society maybe to answer that question first before we license people to destroy the life before it's born. Abortion will not go away if it's illegal. It will just become very dangerous for women that are already disadvantaged. Wealthy women will always have access to safe abortions. Okay, I agree with that, by the way, that abortion will not go away if it's made illegal, but we already talked about earlier. Now will sexual abuse, now will murder, now will rape, now will child abuse. None of these things go away because they're made illegal. None of them, not a single one of them. You misunderstand the role that law plays. It's not meant to eliminate evil, it's meant to limit it. 
and to instruct society while doing it. We make things illegal to limit the practice of evil in society and to instruct society that those are not proper behavior or proper behaviors in a civilized society. Murder has no place in a civilized society. Rape has no place in a civilized society. We will limit it as much as we can, and then we will enforce the laws as best we can to punish the people who cross those lines. We make laws to limit evil and to instruct society. Let's look at uh, uh, drinking and driving laws. Drinking and driving laws came into existence in my lifetime, and I remember how crazy people were when they came into existence. What are you going to do? You have roadblocks. You're going to stop people while they're driving. You're going to test them to see if they've had anything to drink. You're going to arrest somebody for having a drink and then getting in their car. This is outrageous. But we wanted to limit the evil of drinking and driving because it was killing people. And we wanted to instruct society that that's wrong. And when we did those things, an interesting thing happened. We do have roadblocks. We do have tests, sobriety tests. We do have people getting arrested. And the standard for being drunk while you were driving used to be really high. And the more people got used to the law and the more it instructed them that it's irresponsible to drive your car when you are impaired because it's dangerous to you and to other people and you can kill your fellow man doing it, the limit for what you had to have had in your system starts to go down. Oh, we're willing to punish you for less now because we've learned and figured out that this is wrong. And the punishment became more as we started to say, if you get behind the wheel of that car and you do something that costs another human being a life, you ought to have known better. You live in a generation in a world that has been telling you this is wrong all along and we made it illegal and you did it anyway your punishment will be proportional to the crime. And what we understood is proportional to that crime. The punishment has gone up. The limits to what you're allowed to have have gone down as we've gotten more comfortable because the law limits evil and it instructs society. By the way, you see this also the UN when it tried to make everybody in the, every country in the world uh, say that spanking was, should be illegal. And they, there was an attempt by the UN to say spanking should be illegal in every country in the world. And they, they admitted, by the way, we will never be able to enforce this, but it will instruct on the proper way to raise your kids to the world around you. Laws limit evil and instruct society. They don't eliminate practices. You can't. So you're right. We'll never get rid of abortion. That is absolutely true. But nobody ever said we would. Nobody ever made that claim. What we said was that legally restricting it will limit its practice and hopefully teach the world, including those of us who have a responsibility to come alongside those people experiencing crisis or unplanned pregnancies, that we have a greater duty and responsibility to our fellow man and that we may have to skip our favorite TV show. We may not have to stream our favorite thing tonight. We may have to, to not spend money on a, a dinner because we're going to give a little bit more of ourselves in either time or resources to the people around us to help them to deal with what they cannot deal with today. People are the most important thing that you come in contact with every day of your life. And if we lived in a culture that embraced that idea more, it would be better for all of us. So that's something that the law can do. But nobody ever said it was going to go away. It will become very dangerous for women as a claim. All right, let's look at that. Because I did an article for Christian Research Journal when the Roe v. Wade 
the, the Dobbs versus Jackson draft was first leaked. And one of the things was we were looking at the claims that people had about the danger of abortion. Now, um, the book that I'm going to be talking about with Megan on the next show happening talks about illegal abortion as it existed in, as, as it existed in 1963 in Paris, France, and it is horrifying. But that's not the state that we live in today. I don't like the term safer abortion, so that abortion has gotten safer, even though it is absolutely true that over the last 150 years, abortion has gotten crazy safe for the women securing abortions in comparison to what they were before. That doesn't mean that they're safe today. It means that in comparison to what they did before to get abortions, it is a, they have gotten, I like to use the term, they are more efficient at abortion. They are better at killing the child without killing the mother than they've ever been in all of human history. They've gotten better at that. They can kill the child without killing the mother. That is their improvement. So, but here, don't believe me. Here is a, a quote from a pro-choice college professor, Abigail R.A. Aiken of the University of Texas. And she was quoted as saying, when you say self-managed abortion, people think about a coat hanger in a back alley abortion. The reality is we're sitting here in 2019 and it's not like that anymore. You can go online, you can fill out a form and you can get this safe and effective technology delivered to your home. Technology, what she's talking about is RU486 protocol, two pills that they claim are safer than Tylenol. So you can't at one point sit around and say, women are going to die. Women are going to die. Women are going to die everywhere. And then on the other side say, are you 46 is safer than Tylenol? Just take it and your pregnancy ends. Those are combating narratives. And one of them is more lying than the truth. I think every successful abortion ta unjustly takes the life of an innocent human being. So I'm never going to use the term safe abortion. But the narrative that we're going to go into this abortion wasteland where people are going to be dying of self-inflicted abortions everywhere and we're back to coat hangers and we're back in the back alley is refuted here by even a pro-choice advocate who says that's the past. That's not the world that we live in. You order a pill online, you take it, it's safer than Tylenol. That's the pro-choice position today. So familiarize yourself with that if you're one of the people that are running around saying that women are going to die. Because we've been convinced or, we, or they've attempted to convince us for years that the abortion pill is... And by the way, over 50% of abortions in the United States are now happening through that RU486 protocol. That's how most abortion happens in the United States. You take two pills. We could do... We, we will do a whole segment on that later because it's not as easy as people like to make it out and it has its own consequences. But you can't fight both dueling narratives at the same time in public. You can't say that abortion through RU486 protocol is safer for the woman than taking Tylenol and then run around screaming at everybody or saying, or even here, this is not screaming. This is, or, or, or feeling deeply women will die because this person says, that's just not the world we live in anymore. You're thinking of the past. You're not thinking of today. So it's not true then as we make that accusation that women are necessarily going to die through the restriction. And hopefully we can just convince people to not have abortions as much as we possibly can. And it doesn't come into play. We tend to look at this through the very affluent eyes. Oh, wait, she says pregnancy is not easy. I'm sorry. And they nearly died in childbirth. That's terrible. And if your life was at risk, we can have a, we'll have a whole segment on the show or later on about how we morally sort through when we have two lives that are going to die if we do nothing and one life that we can preserve if we do something. But, but if, at some point in pregnancy, if you're talking about a childbirth, it almost died, then the most efficient thing that we can do is separate the patients as quickly as possible, right? Once we get to the place where childbirth becomes dangerous, by the way, I had a, when my wife was having 
trouble with our first child. We had, we wanted to do natural childbirth, but then all of a sudden we we're having these complications. And I talked to the doctors and they said, this is what we want to do. We want to do an emergency C-section. So how does that work? They said, if things go bad while we're in the midst of this, we can have that child out at 90 seconds. 90 seconds. If you want to have a late-term abortion and you show up to an abortion clinic and say, I'm in trouble, my life is at risk, you got to get this baby out of here through abortion, an abortion at that point takes like 24 to 36 hours because they have to dilate you. And then they have to be able to go in and tear the life apart and pull it out. When you're talking about at childbirth, at that point, at that advanced stage or anything close to it, months after, after about halfway through pregnancy, when we get into those later term abortions, when there is a life at risk, the fastest solution is to separate the patients. We take the child out and we deal with them as a patient. And now we have the mother isolated from the child. The safest and fastest route in that level of crisis is separate. It, as that doctor said, if you get that woman on that table, I can have it done in 90 seconds if I have to. That's how quickly I can separate the patients. You go in for a late-term abortion, here's, uh, we're going to stick those little seaweed things up inside of you to uh, dilate your cervix, and we'll see you in 24 to 36 hours and see how you're doing so that we can fit this to. That's not what you do in an emergency, and that's not how emergency abortion works. There's no such thing in that sense, right? We're talking about it in earlier stages. That's a different thing when you're talking about tubal ectopic pregnancy, and we'll deal with that later. And so when we're saying pregnancy is not easy, no one is saying it is. But when you, but even when we talked about Kate Greasley in the past, when she says, okay, I am willing to concede as a woman and a feminist that pregnancy comes with immense challenges. But the price to see through those challenges for the woman is to endure the suffering for a period of time and then come through it. If the unborn are fully human, which she doesn't think they are, if the price for ending that challenges for the unborn is that we kill them, that on balance, they're being asked to pay an unreasonable price for the level of suffering that a normal pregnancy or even an abnormal pregnancy brings. That if they are human, then we can't say the hardness of pregnancy is a justification for killing them. Then you just go back to they're not human, and at that point, it doesn't matter how hard pregnancy is because they don't matter at all. And that's the argument we need to have. We tend to look at this through the, our very fluent eyes. Everyone claims you can just put babies up for adoption. But how many children in our foster care system? Caring for a crack baby is a lifelong commitment wrought with overwhelming challenges. Okay, we got two more things we're going to cover in this, and then we're going to be done. But this is the first. First of all, I hate the terminology, put a baby up for adoption. I put up groceries. I don't put up a child. Children are placed in adoption. They're placed in adoptive families. They are placed in families that hopefully will love them and take care of them and help them to flourish as human beings. People who have opened their home precisely because they want to spend a lifetime loving this child. So when you want to talk about the word adoption, let's stop saying put them up for adoption because that stigma manifests itself when counseling people facing a crisis pregnancy and you have people who say, yes, I believe it's a life. Yes, I believe it's my child, but I would still rather get an abortion than place it in adoption because I don't want to do that to them. I can't live knowing I have a child out there. So we have to rearrange our mind how we think about adoption. Is it? The best option, all things being considered, if we lived in an ideal world, I don't think so. I think the natural parents 
being healthy and raising their child, the biological parents being healthy and raising that child is the best thing for that child, a mom and a dad raising their child and loving them and taking care of their needs. But not everybody is ready for that. Not everybody is prepared for that. Not everybody wants that life. So the next best option is to find people who will take on that role in their life and love them forever and take care of them and create an environment where they can flourish. Who is begging for the opportunity, by the way, to take a child and say, let us be their home. And you, you place that child with that family. You don't put them up. We place that child with that family and allow them to flourish in that environment. Is it easy for the mother placing her child in adoption? No, no one is saying it is. There's entire systems of counseling that are set up to help them to deal with the trauma of what happens at that moment. Is it a better option than destroying your child? Heck, yes it is. On balance, when we put the two of those up against each other, there is no question which one is both more life-affirming and more more likely to produce a loving and, and a society that, that nourishes the flourishing of all human beings. We want people to be okay. And this gets to the next point, by the way. How many children in our foster care system? We have got to separate in our ideas the idea of adoption at newborns versus adoption out of the foster care system. Because the foster care system is not directly connected to the issue of abortion in which the foster care system is filled with people who were not aborted by their parents. When you end up in the foster care system, most of the time you have ended up there because your parents have entered into a bad place in life. Most often when I talk to people who work in the foster care system because of opioid addiction or some drug addiction, and the child is now living in a world that cannot sustain them in a healthy way. And so they are taken from that home and placed into a foster home. And here's an important distinction. More often than not, the hope of all people involved is that that parent, having been separated from their child now, will get their life together and transform it back into a place that is welcoming to their child so their child can be restored to their natural biological family. That's the main goal of the foster care system. It's not to take people away from their parents and give them to other people. That's not what it exists for. And are there problems in the foster care system? Yes, there are. And there are multiple but it's not because people don't care. Oftentimes you have people voluntarily be foster care and you find out that the retention rate can be very low for foster parents because it's hard. Because it's very hard sometimes to be a foster parent. We would like to think it's just as easy as welcoming a kid into your home. You love them. They love you back. And it's just magic. But a kid that's been separated from their parents is dealing with stuff, man dealing with a lot. And sometimes if they've grown up, if all they've ever known in their life is dysfunction, then they're carrying a heavy weight of dysfunction themselves as they come into these new homes. So do you have foster homes run by abusive foster parents? Sure. Do we have homes where people welcome them in and love them and the foster kid, the foster child, the child who is being fostered by this family rejects their foster family and acts out against them because they, are, they know only dysfunction and they don't trust love and stability. 
Yes, you have that happen. Do we have people that get into the foster care system and realize this is just too hard, I'm getting out? And so we, are, we have a lack of places for people, for, for children to be placed? Of course. Do we have people who have dealt with, dealt with all on that spectrum in one foster where they have some children who have adapted very well, some who are struggling? I know two, I've known two personally in my lifetime, people who took into their house a foster child and then ultimately adopted them only to have after adoption, those children abandon their new family and cut them off altogether and reject them. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain in the foster system, but it's not a part of the abortion issue. Not unless you're saying that wouldn't it have been better for those people to have never been born than to have to go through the foster system. And I don't think that that's fair to say. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what, I have a, a quote here from a young man who was a friend of mine on Facebook and, and he, I asked him if I could use this in, in a post that I put on uh, our website. And I'll link all of these things if I mention them into our video before, below. And he says this, I was born to an unwed mother with substance abuse issues. I was a foster child basically from birth. I thank God in heaven I wasn't aborted to spare me from suffering. And I have heard that same refrain from so many foster kids. So if your objection is your fear that abortion is feeding the foster care system, let me help you out with that. It's not. Those are two different things. Right now, there is, there are there are, there is a waiting list for newborn children and families that wish to take them in. There are more families that want to take care of children than there are children being born for them to take care of. That's just the world that you live in right now. The foster care system and the adoption that goes through there is just a, an incredibly complicated issue. I've known people that, that fostered and then wanted to adopt a child. They first brought in their house when the child was six, and then the adoption process itself wasn't finished until the child was 16. Because there's just so, there are so many hurdles that have to be overcome to get to the end of that process. And it can be painful and it can be difficult and it can be frustrating, but it has nothing to do with abortion. Those are two different things. Unless you're saying it would be better for children to never go into the foster care system by being destroyed before they come to life. And there I, I can offer you more quotes than just the one that I've already offered you for people that grew up in the foster care system that say it was not ideal, but every day I'm happy to be alive. And I've had some of them flat out say, would you please? Stop using me as an excuse for abortion. I don't want you using me in my life as your excuse for abortion. So intensely complicated, something that we have to deal with as a society, but not directly tied to abortion. And here's the last. Oh, and she does say caring for a crack baby is a lifelong commitment wrought with overwhelming challenges. Um, I get that sentiment, but it's wrong. And, and I mean, that one's just demonstrably wrong. I don't mean to be flippant when I say that, but it took me a couple of, Research because back then when we were when we were kids, my wife worked with in um, inner city schools when she was teaching public school, inner city elementary school. When there were children that had development issues that were laid at the feet of a crack addiction when they were born, uh, and so that was a long time ago. Though don't mean to make it sound like my wife and I are old, but we are older, and so that was a long time ago that all that happened. And so it takes time to compile research. So I went and pulled up what the most current research says, and it says crack had little long term effect on babies. Researchers find. That was back in January 2009. Uh, the New York Times ran an article in 2009 at the same time that study came out that said the ap epidemic that wasn't 
and said that the long-term effects of cocaine addiction, heroin addiction, crack addiction on children has not turned out to be what we feared it would be. As a matter of fact, fetal alcohol syndrome or smoking when you're pregnant appear to have more damaging long-term effects than being born with these addictions. It doesn't mean that's a good thing. Nobody's saying that's a good thing or that it's nothing. What they're saying is that the fears that this would be a lifelong hurdle or a lifelong obstacle for these human beings to live with have not panned out, that they are okay. By and large, they're all right. They have some issues, but nothing so bad that they can't function as human beings. And so even there, I think we have to be careful because what I said earlier on this, I think is still true. We are at our worst when we operate out of the spirit of fear. We're at our best when we operate out of spirit of love. And if we foster a spirit of fear of children, babies that were born with addictions that, had, that they had nothing to do with, and we say, but oh my gosh, if you take that baby, you're going to have to deal with that for the rest of their lives. Let me allay your concerns. It's nowhere near as big a deal as we once thought it was. And the long-term effects of it are negligible compared to other things that they're going to have to deal with. And they're fine. So if you find yourself in a position to help a baby that has been born to a mother who's addicted to drugs, do so knowing that that baby has a positive future if they're loved and given the right environment. And that that circumstance of their birth will not dictate who and what they are for the rest of their life, nor will it be a burden that you can't overcome with enough commitment and love. So finally, this is the final point of the show. Eliminate the need for abortion and you will eliminate abortion. I don't believe that's true. Last week, we had Leah Savis on to talk about her book, The Story of Abortion in America. And we talked about how the doctors from the very beginning that understood embryology better than the, the general public believed in their heart of hearts if we could just show people the development life, the development of that life inside the woman, then they will reject abortion. And they did. And they did. And then there was a group of people that believed if we can just take care of their needs, if we can give them a place to go, if we can give them a safe environment to overcome the problems they have in the early 20th century, they will never choose abortion. And they made these safe places, and they still chose abortion. And then Bernard Nathanson, who was an abortionist, who, had every, who fought hard uh, to legalize abortion to Roe v. Wade, and, and, you know, as providence would have it, as God would have it, so ultrasound technology comes into existence at the time that Roe v. Wade becomes the law of the land. And Bernard Nathanson sees what his abortions are doing in ultrasound, and it transforms him from an abortionist to a pro-life advocate. He made the movie Silent Scream, believing that if he showed people what abortion was, they would reject it. And he did, and they did. Center for, Me for Medical Progress a few years ago wanted to show the un- savory practices of the abortion industry. And they did um, undercover journalism to expose some of the things that were going on. And they believed, as many people did when those videos started to come out, if people could just see the brutality of abortion and the profit, the profiteering off of the lives of these destroyed human beings, they will reject abortion. And they saw it and they didn't. Here's the sad truth, and we've discussed this a few, few times on the show. And I discussed it last week when Elise Hogue, when I looked uh, from a 2019 panel where she was on, where she said that American abortionists say that there are three exceptions that most people have when they're evaluating abortion, life of the mother, rape, and me. I do not believe that if we eliminate the need for abortion, you eliminate abortion. And here's why. There are people out there for whom abortion will always look like the easiest path. 
I say look like, seem to be, appear to be the easiest path because I believe there are spiritual and emotional co- uh, consequences for abortion that most people don't count on when they are making their uh, decisions based on what their plans are for the next few years. But if we set that aside for a second, if you have two options, one of them requires you to extraordinarily love a child, let's say that you don't intend to parent and that you're going to place an adoption when the whole thing is over. Allow it to grow inside of you, go through the pain of childbirth, and then go through the pain of separation as you place that child in a home. Well, that's a life-affirming option, and it's a heroic option. And it's the kind of thing I think that all human beings should aspire to be at our best. And then you have someone else standing there that says, give me a few minutes and $700, and you can go back and live your life the way it was before you found out you were pregnant. You can go back, you can reset. All you have to do, legal or illegal, is to give me a few hundred to a thousand dollars or three thousand dollars for later, whatever. Give us a few minutes to do what we do, and then you're just back to the way that you were right before you found out. Now, I don't believe that's a promise that can be delivered. And I think it's a major problem in our culture that we buy that there are certain solutions to problems that just aren't really solutions. But take taking that from the woman's perspective. What's easier? The reset button of abortion. And that's why I think there's truth to what Elise Hoag said when she said that there are three exceptions. Life of the mother, rape, and me. People want their abortions. They want to be able to get them. And even if they don't, by the way, I've said before, and I'll say it again, 75 to 80% of women in the United States will never get abortions during the course of their lifetime. The overwhelming majority of people just do not access abortion. It's not something that they do. But it doesn't mean they don't want it there in case they may want to do it. Those women on the damage report were talking about how they want it for there for their daughters. Who, who, who sits around and hopes in their heart of hearts their daughter will one day get an abortion? It's not their hope that their daughter gets an abortion. It's the reality of having that reset button there. You take care. If you eliminate the need for abortion, I do not believe you eliminate abortion. We can limit abortion. The best that we can do is limit it by restricting it and by making the case that we are at our best when we are loving our neighbor and including as many people as possible in our neighborhood, including the unborn, and that we will find life-affirming ways that may challenge us and that may restrict our decisions that we're going to make, but that we'll be better people on the other side of it, and we will find a better society that's safer for everyone, not just for them, because the same arguments that make them vulnerable make others vulnerable. That's the way that we should go but it's never going to look like the easiest path as long as there's someone there willing to profit off of abortion. So I disagree with that. I don't think that we can eliminate the need for abortion. I think that we can mitigate it, but not eliminate the need for it. And I think even if we did eliminate the need for it, as we've discussed in this section, that doesn't get rid of it because it always feels like an easier option to somebody. And then there's always somebody willing to take their money to give them that easier option. So, I deeply appreciate that. And I appreciate the idea that we, we took a more thoughtful, I think, and longer approach to it. I think there was a lot to think through there. And I'm looking forward to more responses from people who disagree with me so that we can look at those as well. But I think at the end of the day, you see, even this multi-layered approach, none of it raises the level of being able to justify the destruction of an human life if they are one of us. And if they're not one of us, then that's what the claim needs to be. 
right? If, if they are one of us, then none of these things, as much as, as much as we need to concern ourselves with them as a society, and I grant that we do, none of them raise the level of destroying one of us. And if you're like, well, I just don't think they're one of us, then I say, okay, then that's what you have to argue, that they're not one of us. Explain to me why they're not one of us. Because they are human. That, the science on that is settled. So why are they the kind of humans we're allowed to kill when you and I would probably say that we're not the kind of humans we're allowed to kill? What makes them different? What makes us different from the time we were embryos to fetuses to the more mature human being standing in front of us now that we could, we could be killed then, but we can't be killed now? They have to account for that difference because I just take an easier approach. Every single one of us are human beings and ought to be treated with dignity and respect. Appreciate being able to take more time on this today. Again, if you have objections, if you have justifications for abortion, please send them to me. I would like to interact with actual pro-choice arguments and not with the ones, I don't want straw men. I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, and I deeply appreciate that person sharing that with me. I hope I, I hope I dealt with it respectfully. And if you, if you like the, the, the show, if you like the material that we're putting, if you like this that we're making, please go to uh, merelyhumanministries.org and contribute to us there. Subscribe to these videos and have a great day. Thank you, and we'll see you on the next episode of Human Things.